You're listening to Politics Explained. Back to basics in the political sandpit with Rodney Hyde and Tane Webster. Hello and welcome to Reality Check Radio. This is Politics Explained, Back to Basics in the Political Sandpit with Tane Webster. Today I have a special guest in place of Rodney, Marie Buskey. Welcome, Marie. Hey, welcome, Tane. Thanks for having me. Hey, it's going to be really good. So today we're going to cover the Maori role, the difference between the Maori role and the general role, the implications of it and your thoughts on it. Right, yeah, the Māori electorates and the Māori roles. So the Māori role has been around for a really long time. I mean, New Zealand is actually quite unusual. We've uh, Māori have had and have been part of our political structure here uh, since the, um, since around oh the seats were created all the way back in um, eighteen sixty seven. So um, or even earlier than that actually. They and so they've been around for a really really long time and. The interesting thing, I'm going to start with this, and this is just to put it into context for the Māori role versus the New Zealand general role. So two roles were created, and the Māori role was created as a way for Māori to be part of the election process. And it all started because there were a lot of there was a lot of fighting going on with the Northern Tribes. So one of the things I'm going to preface um, is that when it comes to Māori politics, Māori politics is much more colourful, dynamic, and diverse with opinions than regular standard New Zealand politics always has been. Okay, so, uh, and that comes from the tribal nature of Māoridom, and it is all based around hapu. So iwi is actually a, a colonial westernised concept. It's not actually a concept from, from Māori. Māori about, are about hapu, so that next layer back, that, that family structure. So it's very feudalistic in the sense that it is all grown up around whānau and family and hapu. And they have been in fighting um, since they got here. And so you sort of have to go even further back and, and look at the history of Māori colonisation of New Zealand when they arrived, because they didn't all arrive at the same time. They didn't all leave from the same place. They didn't all land in the same places. And so, you know, this has all been going on from, well, I mean, the mass migration was in the 1300s, but even the initial kupe, uh, which was around 11-ish, 100, it's, been, it's complicated. Okay, so you have to realise that. So there was a lot of fighting going on amongst those northern tribes uh, in the 1860s. So when the British were here, they were seeing this and they were thinking, well, how do we, we've, we've got this treaty signed, how do we essentially get everybody to the table? So uh, being British, they in the home of the Magna Carta and all of that, they thought, right, well, let's create this Māori role and these Māori seats to allow Māori essentially a seat at the table in the governance table. So that happened in 1867, and so four seats were created, uh, north, south, east and west. Very, very simple. And it was only ever supposed to be temporary. Their thought was, is we'll create these seats, we will, um, it will get all the warring factions, uh, because there were these inter-Māori land wars going on, 
and you don't get taught about that in history. It's another conversation for another day. So that was all going on and it gets all of those leaders back around a table under the guise of uh, um, governance and, and elections. So they did that, they created those four and, and it worked so well that they actually enshrined and entrenched it uh, four years later. So they actually made it uh, a permanent fixture. And the original law that was written up was actually written up by a Napier MP, Douglas McLean, uh, Don McLean rather, and he's quite famous, like these streets and everything named for him here. So that all, um, he's, he drew everything up in 1867 and then they enshrined it uh, later on. So I'm not gonna go into the sort of history to and fro, but to where we are currently. So what we have now currently is we now have seven seats. So it's grown from four to seven. Uh, and there are six seats in the North Island. And there are there has only ever been one seat in the South Island. The poor South, they've only ever had one seat. And they are divided based up on population, just like the standard electoral seat. So they, they are a, a candidate seat like any other seat. The difference being, in order to vote for a candidate in that seat, you have to uh, declare that you have been descended from Māori. Now, interestingly enough around that is that you don't, the candidate, the candidate since 1967, doesn't themselves need to be descended from Māori. So technically, anybody could run as a Māori candidate. However, the caveat on that, the expectation within those seats is whoever that candidate is that runs should have a knowledge of te reo, they should have a knowledge of um, uh, tikanga Māori, they should have knowledge of te ao Māori, they should have a knowledge of essentially how the entire protocol around Māori culture and particularly marae culture and politics runs. So it tends to disqualify anyone else outside the non-Māori. Now, caveat again to that is you could have someone like Ming Foon who understands all of those things. If Ming actually wanted to, now that he's resigned and not resigned and resigned and then decided he's resigned um, from his current job, if he wanted to run, for example, as a um, an MP in the Māori ward, he would be actually qualified to do so with his experience. So that's just something, it's just one of the little interesting quirks. Uh, there's around 260 odd thousand people registered on the Māori roll total. And it was quite interesting, I dived in today because I haven't looked at them for ages. And one of the things that actually really struck me is when I was growing up with a Māori roll, and the way it generally works is if you register uh, for an iwi, as a lot of us do, I've, I mean, I have, um, I'm from two iwis, from, from Ngāti Pro and Te Rawara, so I'm registered with both iwis, and I essentially do that so they're aware of where people are, and uh, also I did it, actually, I did it when my children were born because I wanted to have the ability, if there was opportunities for them, that they could draw on that. Uh, Ngāti Pro, I'd, I'd actually been registered with for a lot, lot longer, and once you register with an iwi, that's when you used to get sent out at election time, you would get sent out uh, an option to be on the Māori or the general role. And back in the day when I was doing it, um, not that I've ever been enrolled on the Māori role, but the option would be is you wouldn't, if you chose to enroll on the Māori role, you had to be there for five years. So you could only switch in or out every five years, which is was a weird number. I don't know why they created it, considering our election cycle is three yearly. You would have thought that they would have it congruent with the election cycle, but it's not. 
Well, it wasn't. It was every five. That has now just changed. So law has now been passed as of 31st of March this year that you can actually um, switch on and off that role whenever you want. The only time you can't switch in or out is three months outside it from, from an election. So with this upcoming election, you need to fix yourself on that role by the 13th of July of this year. That's And so if you want to go on the role or off the role, that's when that decision needs to be made. And if there's a by-election, Obviously, that you have to. Um, there's a date set in stand, sand that you can't switch on and off. But it's now that the guard, the barn door is fully open and un, unhitched, and uh, Māori can bounce around uh, between the Māori and general roles. So why would someone be on the Māori role? Well, traditionally, they were there because that was a place that they had a candidate that specifically understood issues that were quite unique to Māori. And you had a candidate that was intimately aware of those issues nearly nine times out of ten because these uh, seats are regional it was somebody who was local so they were deeply ingrained and tied to that region by blood it was almost like having a family a wider family representative for them in parliament and to a greater or lesser extent that hasn't changed and particularly in the more rural electorates. Uh, so Mika Whaiteri uh, would be a good example of that with Ikararafiti. So Māori electoral seats and the Māori role has enabled, has also been like a trust exercise between Māori and uh, the government of the day and has allowed them representation and, and a voice. So that's sort of a, a, a bit of the history. Now things have changed quite rapidly where the Māori seats are involved. And there's lots of little quirks with Māori seats. So one of the um, interesting things with the Māori role initially is the Māori role particularly now, and this is the numbers that I looked at um, earlier, back in the day when I was first aware of it, the Māori role was something that a lot of older Māori were on. So it was it tended to skew older. Now, the skew, the vast majority of um, the weight, sort of 60, 40 on the Māori role, is actually that under 40. So they're much, much younger. And there has been a, a tremendous push by particularly um, the Labour government to get young voters enrolled. And if you're a young voter with Māori descent, they've really encouraged you to go on that Māori role. And we could get into the cynical reasons of why that is the case, but that is something that's happened and it's worked. So the vast, so at least more than 60% of people on that Māori role currently are under 40, so they're young. Uh, all the seats roughly have around the same uh, number of people in them, anywhere between 34, 35,000 up to about 38,000 uh, voters. But that in itself is, um, you're actually dealing with quite a small voter base in a way. So that makes those seats, those seven seats, which all have representation in the House, if you win one of those seats, gives you that ability to coattail in on your party list. Every is at what, 1.2%? Um, you can bring in an extra MP. Those, and, and I think this is where people forget, these Māori seats are incredibly powerful to actually set up representation and the balance of MP in the House. I think people realise how vitally important that they are and how vile they are. It, it's all over the show. At the moment, the um, all bar one are held by Labour. In the last few elections, it's been very strong in that, that case. But that's not always been the case. In the modern canon, um, I mean, in 1996, for example, 
uh, there were, I think we had um, five seats in 1996. How many, um, do you know who, they were all held by one party. Do you know who, Tane? I did my research as well, Star and I 10. think it's New Zealand first. It was no? New Zealand first. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it was New Zealand first. And, you know, that's one of those things that people forget. And it was the first time, you know, you've got, you can, you've got to give it to Winston. He's clever. The other, what, the other thing that was key about a 1996 election was, political quiz start of 10. Don't know, sorry. Don't know. It was our first election under MMP. Right. So think about that, right? So it, that's when New Zealand first was at its greatest power because, I mean, Winston, uh, he held Tauranga on the general role, but they won all five Māori seats. Now, that's huge. They had strong candidates in those areas. They held all of those seats, which then meant that's why New Zealand was so strong in that coalition um, back at that time, because off the basis of having those five candidate seats, they were able to bring more in on the list at that time. So that's why those Māori seats are actually, if you are a minor party, um, those if you're going to win a seat, you're more likely to win the seat in the Māori electorates. Now, the other interesting little quirk between Māori seats and general seats, the situation we have currently, right, Northland. So Northland, from a general role perspective, is, I think, going to be one of the battlegrounds of this election. And I think it's going to be one of those places uh, where massive decisions for the entire country are going to focus on that single electorate. And the reason for that is we've got very strong candidates running in there, and we've got uh, small party candidates all duking it out. So you've got Willow Jean Prime for Northland, you've got Mark Cameron for ACT, who's currently a list MP, very strong performer for ACT. ACT are surging in the rural vote, and a good number of those voters are rural. You've got uh, the National MP's name, just eludes me for the minute. Um, then you've got Matt King, obviously, who was the National MP for that electorate for one term and then missed out on specials the second time around, running for Democracy New Zealand. And then you've got um, Uncle Shane. Uncle Shane from New Zealand First, Shane Jones. He's also running there, plus he's a Green candidate and a couple of other rats and mice. Northland is, Northland is where they're going to be jerking it out. And you've got a lot of people on the uh, non-Marxist side of the fence, so i.e. not the Greens and not Willogen, who can essentially split that vote. Now, the problem with that, of course, is that all sits really well and good for Willogen. Now, she, from what I understand, since she's had the ascension in the Māori caucus, she is now sitting pretty. Uh, she's not there very often, but in a way she doesn't need to be. So Northland is an area that you need to watch. Now, 38 odd thousand, or yeah, 38 odd thousand Māori voters do not vote in the Northland electorate. They vote in the Te Tautaukarau electorate, which is currently held by Calvin Day. Calvin, Calvin. Uh, and he, I'm, I haven't actually checked into the city, I'm assuming he's standing again. Now, they will be duking it out on the general role, and it's, it's one to watch. So Matt King is putting all his eggs in the Northland basket. And he has said this on record. I think he said this on interview with Paul Brennan in The Breakfast Show. I've heard him say it elsewhere. He genuinely believes that he is going to win that seat because he's got a good rapport with the voters up there. He's put the work in and he knows them. Now, traditionally, general elector voters, general role voters, 
tend not to vote for the person quite so much. They tend to vote for the party. So if they are a blue rosette person, they'll vote for whoever the national candidate is. You could stand Mickey Mouse in there and they'll vote for Mickey Mouse. That is how they vote. They vote for the party. So they vote their candidate vote as if it were a party vote. That's And that's how they've always done it. They won't split it. They won't change it. They will keep it the same. And he's got to fight against that. And it's, and it's just fact. It's just how it is. The Māori electorates, though, mm -mm, that doesn't stand at all. They, but they vote very, very much based on the candidate, not the party. So this is what Mika Whaiteri is looking to leverage now that she has uh, walker jumped from the, Māori, um, from the Labour Party into the Māori Party. And she's looking at holding a Karaurafati. Now that was a safe seat for Labour for eons. I, I've never, I mean, since 1996, uh, I think, once it flipped back from New Zealand first, it was um, been Labour ever since. And Parakura Horomea was the MP there for the longest time. And he, I got a soft spot for Parakura. He was a very nice man. Now Parakura pretty much, he anointed Becca as his, um, successor and she essentially walked into that seat if Parakura said this is who I think you should this is my you know this is this is who I want to my ascendant and they did so she has that pretty much that seat wrapped up now unlike other seats where you have a volunteer base and people around that work in the candidacy and keep things going for that seat Māori seats it's all about nepotism a lot of that party apparatus is all family based, right? So when Mecca jumped shipped from Labour to the Māori Party, it wasn't just Mecca that jumped. It was Mecca and her entire whānau infrastructure around her retaining that seat. So Labour now need to announce a candidate into that seat and have to recreate the entire machinery of human capital for that candidate to create that seat because they've all gone. They've all gone with Auntie Mecca. So it's, it is something that is quite unique to those mighty seats. So she stands a really, really good chance of stealing that seat away from Labour because they will vote for Mecca, not for Labour. And, and, that, and we have seen that um, time and again, Tariana Turia, she did it when she left in two, um, 2004, she left, uh, she was a minister, she left a Labour that forced a by-election, and the by-election, she won that electorate, she was um, Tita, uh, where was she, she was Tita Haurua, and that's over, that's Taranaki, so she was over there, she won that seat with 90% of the vote. 90% of the vote because they voted for Tariana and of course she created the Māori Party and the Māori Party then went on to have tremendous success. Uh, they got up to four seats in 2005 and then they sort of had a cycle where they were um, rebuilding and then of course Wairiki changed up over at this last election with the flip-flop between Labour and Tamati Coffee and uh, Rawiri Waititi. So there's lots of sort of moving and, and, and shimmying around. Um, our friends up again at Te, uh, Te Tokoro, uh, that was um, Honi, and then Honi in 2011, there was uh, over the foreshore and seabed legislation, Honi had his, there was lots of brouhaha going on there. He left, 
he then ran as um, under Mana. He won that seat. There was sort of an agreement, and and that allowed him to do that. So there's lots of, as I said, it's really dynamic. The Māori seats are really, really dynamic, and ignore them at your peril. Like if you're sitting on the side of the fence, who think that well, these seats shouldn't exist. They shouldn't be there. They should be gone. Well, they're not. So until if and when they disappear, and I don't think they will. I don't think they'll go anywhere any time, certainly in the current political climate. Um, they are really powerful. You know, that's seven seats that are very elastic, can change all the time. And unless you are up to date with the cultural nuance within Māori, there is, a, to me, that's actually some of the most exciting places with the election. Sorry, I've talked a lot, Tane. Very sorry. No, you haven't. No, you haven't. It's all right. So you just touched on it there, though. I think some people want to know your thoughts on this. They want to know our thoughts on it. Do you think the Maori electorates should continue to exist? It's 2023 now. I know from when I looked into it that, you know, National Act and New Zealand, first of all, opposed it, Act continued to oppose it at various times. Yeah. What do you sit on that? Um, so National Spec tracked on that. So National have, um, yeah, they're trying to please everybody. Uh, which I don't, I mean, look, I, if you're going to make a position, make it. That's what I respect Act for, they've made it. New Zealand First actually is the one that I think have approached it most realistically. They want a referendum on it, which to me makes perfect sense. Uh, but of course, it depends on the starting point and how you decide on that referendum. Because you've got to remember, I mean, at the moment, only around 14% of people identify as Māori, and not all of those are on the Māori roll. Right. In fact, the vast majority aren't on the Māori role. If you'd asked me this question five years ago, I would have said to you, no, I'm quite comfortable with the Māori state staying because I see the value having grown up in a predominantly Māori community that those Māori seats play. So they act as a conduit to those, particularly those rural communities who for them to have a voice in governance, in a structure that with somebody that can translate because how the Māori structure and you've got to remember Māori have their own set of internal governance right so you've got their they've got their whole Māori parliament that they run at Waitangi that's what the Waitangi celebrations are about and they have hui and they meet regularly they have a lower house they have an upper house they have the country divided out into rohi they have different representatives and they use that to vote on their own Māori issues so that that's a whole nother conversation for a whole nother time, but they already have that structure there. But this gives them a seat at the um, New Zealand corporation table, the, you know, the, at a national level. So, and there are issues that are very specific to them. And if you have, a, and it, well, this is all candidate dependent, if you have a really good candidate that is focused on those issues for their electorate, well, then they're an electorate, just like any other electorate. So they're able, and you've got, when you've got an electorate like um, the East Coast, for example, which is a geographically a massive area, Ikaroarafati also overlaps that entire area, plus comes down here through to, to Southern Hawke's Bay. It then just means that those people, and up in the that part of East Coast, a good chunk of those voters are, um, on the Māori role. So they then have that representation to all of those issues 
all of those issues that are specific to them. Now, the caveat is, in the last five years, the Māori political apparatus has now been hijacked by activists, particularly those in the Maoist and Marxist tradition. A good chunk of them are with um, the Labour Party, but they do exist in the Māori Party. And that goes back um, particularly, it's sort of kind of started in the 70s, really started gaining traction in the 80s. We saw some of that uh, crop up through the 90s, but it really, there things like critical theory, Marxism, neo-Marxism, and critical social justice ideas have infiltrated and are masquerading behind the mask of Te Ao Māori. And they, there are those academics and activists who have used that in order to conflate and elevate Māori ideas where they never, were never intended to go. I mean, if you were to ask Aparananata about what he thinks of what's going on today, I can tell you right now, he would not be down with it, um, particularly around the treaty. I'm, I'm actually torn because I see the value in the Māori seats. I really do, for Māori, but they're being, they're being hijacked. I think, by activists within there. And there are a lot of really concerned Māori around that. And whilst they've now allowed that barn door, they've unlatched that barn door and they're allowing people to move both ways, the assumption, I think, is they're trying to push as many, that's why there's so many young people there, they're trying to push as many young, university-aged Māori onto that role who have been indoctrinated with these ideas told that this is the Māori way when it's not the Māori way. They've, they're pushing them into that role in order to control those and uh, have extra influence on them. And then you've got people like Karina Shields. I spoke to her a couple of weeks ago, and she's really actively encouraging people to come off that Māori role to give them choice because all of a sudden, as Māori, that candidate that you're voting for isn't actually got your best interests at heart anymore not like it used to be so yeah it is going to again most dynamic seats there's this is something to watch and i think if you're not up to play on what's going on in those seats it's easy just to think they're bubbling along off to the side and you just sort of largely ignore them but they have the power to not only turn but decide in an election and i think this election is going to be one that could potentially be won or lost in those maori seats just a bonus question. Do you think there's not an issue with equal representation? Because I sort of do. You know, there's, I agree, you know, at one point in time that it served a purpose, uh, but then to do it now, to continue to have them now when Maori are pretty part of New Zealand society, and it's not like we're going to be having French seats for those who descend from the French explorers that were here or the, or the or Irish seats, you know, we're not going yeah. to do things like that. So, so let's look at it this way. I mean, that was the original intention, right? So when they set these up, they were set up to be temporary in the hope that once Māori sort of assimilated more, that uh, they would then, you know, they would disappear. There's that sort of talk, and I have heard this, and they'll say, oh, yeah, but it's, you know, one, one vote. But you've got to remember, if you're enrolled on the Māori roll, you can't double dip. 
you can't double dip and go back and then so here i am sitting in the um napier electorate the ahuriri electorate i can't turn around and vote both for ikaroa rapiri and an apic candidate i can only pick one so from a uh a voting perspective if you're on the maori roll i actually think your choice is more restricted that's part of the reason why i never enrolled in the Māori world, there were two reasons. One, I didn't like the idea of being locked in across essentially two election cycles, because a lot can happen in this country. What happened if I was in one, and then in the second election cycle, particularly with the dynamics in Māori electorates, that the next year there was no candidate whatsoever that represented me, and I got really annoyed. I'm trapped. I couldn't get out. Okay? So whereas now you can um, people can move on and off those roles but you're still only voting in a single electorate so what you then have are those electorates which in a way are representational to the voters that sit in that electorate so you could actually argue it i'm being playing devil's advocate here you could argue it the other way that the maori seats are vastly more representative from a candidacy point of view and from a, a, a voter point of view than any other seat. So it is, yeah, I can see why there, um, particularly with the co-governance stuff and, and all of those sort of heated elements that are around um, where, where they, I think they get the two confused between over-representation of Māori. Like, I mean, if you look at the number of seats the number of Māori seats versus the number of general electorate seats, right? It is, it's, it's about 8%. So it is, sits below what that number is. I do think that there is an over-representation because of course not 100% of Māori that identifies Māori of the 14 odd percent in this country are on the Māori roll. In fact, I think it's, I actually didn't, I think it was something around 40% of them are. So it was, you know, 261,000 people. But for those 261,000 people, Māori issues is what is really important to them. So they want to be somewhere where they know that their vote and their voice is going to be represented. So I think that there are, it's when these ideologies creep in, and I think there's a knee-jerk, particularly at the moment, uh, there is a wedge that has been driven between Māori and Pākehā and between New Zealanders, Aotearoa and New Zealanders. There's all of this that's been driven and you've got to see who's hammering that wedge in. And it's not, and it's, and it's the ideologues within that Māori elite, in that Māori caucus, because at the end of the day, they're only interested in two things and that's money and power. And it's certainly not the Māori people. That's my opinion. Great way to wrap it up, Marie. Thank you so much for everyone who's listened in. If you have any feedback, questions, ideas, suggestions, things we, you want us to comment on, send us an email at inbox at realitycheck.radio or send us a text at 2057. And uh, we look forward to future episodes of Politics Explained. Thanks, Marie. You're welcome, Tane. You're listening to Politics Explained. Back to basics in the political sandpit with Rodney Hyde and Tane Webster.